0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the producer... Tim Palmer, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Anyway, Tim has been involved with hundreds of bands including the likes of the Mighty Lemon Drops, The Mission, Jean Loves Je- Jezebel, The House of Love, Kajagoogoo, so much. And uh, people like David Bowie, Pearl Jam. But... He has also just been working on a project with Wayne Hussey from The Mission to uh, remix a version of uh, the track The Tower of Strength and this is titled Remission International. Anyway, look. We're going to talk about all that in this uh, show. So I'm going to um, let Tim do the talking. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the exciting subject that was this new uh, project with Wayne Hussey. And this is Tim's response. Tim, it is over to you.
1: Well, that was quite a simple um, thing to achieve because we've been friends for so many years because, as you know, I made a lot of the records with the mission in the in the 80s. Um, the Mission were one of the first bands that gave me the opportunity to really make a band record with them at that time and we recorded in a residential studio and it really was a wonderful experience for me to be sort of part of a group and, and, and make a record in isolation and... Uh, you know, because those residential studios, you really were on your own out in the country, which was fabulous, really, because at least it concentrated the work. Um, People were not getting distracted by their washing at home or things they had to do with any families and girlfriends. So um, residential studios were very helpful. But we went off to Ridge Farm in Surrey um, and made God's Own Medicine. And um, later on, I did an album called Carved in Sand, um, which was in about 1990. And after that, that's when the music industry started to change quite a lot. And more recently, I worked with Wayne again on their album called Another Fall from Grace, which was in 2016. So that was the first time I'd worked with him for years. And it was great because obviously so much time had passed. We'd both grown up a lot. made a lot of records separately and uh it was great to come back together and work together on that album and sort of complete the trilogy as you were of those three three records together and uh, we had a really good time doing it i loved it and uh, the fans seemed to really like the record so so when wayne had this idea of the um the remission international as it's called um he asked me if i would help him um, make it work which i was very happy to do because I'm very active here trying to raise money for music cares and things like that. And, uh, you know, it was a great opportunity for me too to work with some of my heroes from the eighties, whether it be members of Depeche Mode or, or, uh, you know, Gary Newman, people that I've loved um, growing up and buying records. So it was, it was just great, great for me.
0: Yes, absolutely. And obviously, because it's interesting, you mentioned golf because I remember the eighties being very tribal in, in so many ways. And I have to confess, I, I didn't, because of the goth thing, I I slightly missed it and then sort of years later sort of, you know, embraced it a little bit differently because suddenly, you know, you're not that tribal because you're getting older and you can't be bothered anymore. So it must have been quite interesting sort of coming back and sort of getting a lot of those members from that particular scene to to, uh, play on a record because some of them obviously have kind of disappeared a bit. Others haven't quite disappeared but aren't, aren't sort of probably talking to each other anymore. So was it a little bit of a diplomatic kind of mission to put this together
1: well Wayne did most of the phone calls out to his mates you know um he reached out to a lot of people that he knew i reached out to a couple and a lot of them came forward with uh with their contributions and the difficult thing to achieve was that obviously we weren't able to say okay you'll be singing the second line of the second verse just concentrate on that because we didn't know at that point how it was actually going to work so basically wayne reached out and said look i'm doing a cover a new version of tariff strength um would you like to contribute and if it was a, a vocalist like miles hunt or midge Ure, they would sing the whole song so wayne would receive files of the whole song and uh, and then we would collect all the different vocals together and then it was a case of wayne started the process in his studio in brazil picking out what he thought were the best examples of each singer yes. so that it starts to be cohesive you know and, uh, and 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 to be strong so that, that was the first thing that had to be done and of course all the guitarists come piling in and they all <laughs> they're all soloing on the song from beginning to end and i think that was where wayne started to pull his hair out is trying to figure out, you know, where's Billy Duffy's piece of guitar going to be? Where's Richard Fortis from Guns N' Roses' piece going to be? So it was about choosing what worked best for each section. And it was that was a, a mammoth task to undertake. Um, and, and a lot of that, that donkey work was done by Wayne before he sent the files to me. And then my job was then to take it to the next level and sonically and mix-wise make it work and make it feel like one cohesive thing. Mm. And... Uh, yeah, it, it, it worked out really well, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Wayne and I Wayne and I, have very similar um, music that we grew up on and the music that we love, whether it be the Beatles or Susie and the Banshees and John McGeoch as a guitar player. So we think very similar, so that helps. Uh, it's very rarely that I'll go off with a tangent that's completely wrong because we both hear things in a very similar way. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it took a while, I can't deny, to get it right. I mean, some people... Have pretty reasonable recording setups at their home, and some people really don't. Like Billy, Billy from the Cult recorded his guitar solo on his phone. Uh, <laughs> so, so, it was. Um, I was like, okay, well, we'll um, we'll flange it and pan it and do everything we can to make it work. But it sounded good. It sounded really good in the end. Uh, yes. Other things you know, Richard Fortus, as I've mentioned before from Guns N' Roses, did a lot of strings. Um, and he put the string arrangements together and they, they sounded really great. And then I put in some little pieces, some little textures at the very end to sort of glue the thing together. I mean, it was like a, it was sort of an audio jigsaw puzzle really, um, right? Well, does this piece work here, maybe not. Okay. But but in the end, I'm, I'm really happy with the way it came out and the reaction to it so far has been great.
0: Yeah, because I realised in this day and age and what's happened this year that this is probably going to be something that's going to happen a lot more. And did you, I mean, having probably watched that sort of recording, the making of Live Aid and Do They Know It's Christmas, where they all just pile mm. in for a couple of days and have to just get on and do it, whereas you're sort of having to do it sort of around the world and people have got more time to think about it and sort of, I suppose faff about a bit did you did you you know did you see the sort of like the strengths and weaknesses in both ways of of putting it together one was like right we just got the studio and actually Christmas has come around the corner so we're gonna have to do it tonight so lots of coffee and anything else and this one is a bit like oh right okay a bit more tricky this 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 process I just wondered if if you sort of as a sort of producer in the music industry for a long time has kind of seen yeah the way that one you know when you have a definite deadline you just have to do it think that's quite a relief because at least you can sleep for two days with it in the can but then the way the world is going this is also going to be something that is going to be quite popular as well isn't it yeah
1: there's the thing about the way that the first live aid was made having all the musicians come in you could hear very clearly how it was progressing Um, and you had the same studio and the same microphones and you were able to craft it in such a way that it was all part of one thing that that made that simpler obviously recordings coming in from brazil from the uk from scotland from wherever from america that you know and no nobody having any conscious awareness of how the record was going to sound made it harder to mix and to make it work but saying that the tools that were available to us now to be able to manipulate audio make it possible because uh, it probably would, if we tried to make a record the way we've done here on the ReMission International back in those days when they made the Live Aid, that would have been a disaster. I mean, this way with with the technology, if, if you hear something that you like at 30 seconds uh, into the song and fit, realize that it would work so much better at five minutes, it's very fast to be able to move things around, um, adjust any pitching things that might not work with each other, um, timing of vocals where... You know, somebody singing a beautiful harmony, but the the main line of the vocal is singing something very different, to be able to move them to work together is easy now. Back then you'd have to keep singing it until it sounded right. So this the swings and roundabouts to both ways. But I mean, I see this as the sort of this is the goth live aid, but with a better song and better singers, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. And also interesting, you know, like um yeah. I I expect it would have been a bit difficult if you got all those members in in a studio for a day. It probably wouldn't have worked with it. <laughs> <for him>. but, <laughs> <great>. <laughs> so just kind of what's also quite interesting because obviously you're you're a, you know you came of kind of like a maturity. Well, you know your your sort of career took off in the eighties, which is quite an interesting decade. So it's quite interesting to sort of hear how you know music became sort of part of your kind of life and and when when things started to happen you know whether it was the first top of pops buying an instrument before you decided to to sort of make it your life and and yeah. uh, your sort of path in the way you were going
1: that yes it, um the thing that i always remember as a very you know pivotal moment i guess in my love of music and lyrics was I grew up in Newcastle and um, I went to school in a little um, school in Whitley Bay, and I remember one day in our English lesson at school, I can't remember how old I was, probably about six or seven, and our music, uh, our English teacher read the lyrics to uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds uh, to us, just you know, completely dry. He read it as a poem, and uh, we all sat back and listened to this. dreamy poem with all those images and uh, and then and no one had done anything like that before he said okay remember what the poem now listen to this and he put the music on through his speakers and we were able to connect the lyric to the music and how the music enhanced what was there and it was just an incredible moment for me you know I was blown away by this this just this moment and I, I think that stuck with me actually yes absolutely. Um, and then obviously the next influences are as most people's are are from your mum and dad uh in the house and um my parents were uh they weren't huge music fans but they were obviously you know fans of music of that period um, my dad's a little older than my mum, so it was music of the 50s and the 60s and we we had um uh, we used to have those. They, they used to buy those compilation albums, and when I would come home from school, I'd be quite happy to, to just stick on the compilation album. And 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 that's sort of maybe not the coolest way to do it, but at the same time, it introduces you to a lot of different artists. You know, the old K-Tel hits yes. of the 50s. You know that was the first one and you know it's ironic actually that were the first one of the first songs on that um compilation was yellow rose of texas which is where i've ended up living but it had everything from johnny ray and um you know uh, johnny cash and the four lads and Louis armstrong and guy mitchell all those sort of artists and i used to love just listening to all the different songs and um, my dad was a big danny k fan and i loved danny k and um later in my career when i had the opportunity to work with david bowie i found that he was a big danny Kay fan as well and we used to talk about um some of those songs off the um uh, of the hans Christian Andersen album about how you know how they were very haunting to him as well but um yeah basically my parents music collections affected me and of course there was the 60s collection as well which is even better really and that's when we started to get into more rock and roll and stuff like that you know it had everything from the coasters and the beach boys and and you know the kinks and bobby darren and all that sort of stuff so that that that, those those were the first times that i really settled into music and then my father works in television and he went away in mexico to mexico in 1970 for the world cup and when he came back from the world cup he was, uh, he was working on one of the outside broadcast teams. And it was the first time he'd ever been away from me. And, and, it, and it, was, it was a long time for a little boy to be away from his dad. And when he came back, he brought all these gifts for me. And one of the things he brought me back was some, some records. And he had found this artist, Sergio Mendes, in Brazil 66. And I just loved Sergio Mendes. And it was very, very different to anything I'd heard before. But I was able to sort of experience that culture and that type of music and he also liked Herb Albert and stuff like that and Herb Albert and Sergio Mendes were good friends in fact Herb was the one when he formed A&M that broke Sergio Mendes I think but uh, yeah that they were the early that was the early part of getting into music and then of course as I got older and I started to buy my own records then it was then it all became the stuff that you know everybody says for a person of my age it was the sweet It was David Bowie, it was Alvin Stardust and Wizard and Susie Quattro and T-Rex and and Gary Glitter and Gary Glitter's Glitter album was the first album I ever bought with the gatefold sleeve and I just loved it, I just loved that period and that was very exciting. Um, At school we had a party once and everybody dressed up glam and my best mate was trying to look like something from Sweet and didn't really quite get it and he decided he would steal some of his mum's makeup and things to make himself more like a member of sweet, but he he used nail varnish as a as an eyeliner. So he he painted <laughs> nail nail varnish onto his eyeliner onto his eyes, and he had to leave early because his eyes had all crisped over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that
1: was that was that was that period, which you know was very important to me as a as a younger guy. And then, of course, the next step being becoming a teenager was my best friend at the time was a guy called Andy Larson. He got into punk music and he was before me and he played me the saints this perfect day. And when I heard that, I loved it. The excitement, it was so raw and, and as a teenager, it was everything to me. And then that was the beginning of my love of the punk rock scene. And and, um, together with my mates, we saw so many great bands of that period. We were so fortunate now looking back. We saw the Ramones, the clash, dam the buzzcocks the psychedelic furs joy division simple minds the skids the ruts we saw all of those in london shows and it was just amazing it was really amazing and from out of that of course i wanted to be in a band and uh, we formed a little punk band called emergency exit and did that for a while and we were not we weren't too bad but um i don't think that we were good enough to actually make it at that point anyway the band a lot of the members of the band have carried on to be um, quite successful musicians now, but I realized I wasn't such a great singer. And, uh, but I did love being in the studio recording demos. I thought it was the greatest. So I decided I would try and get a job in a studio. And luckily for me, through a contact that my dad had met on one of his shows, one night he said, look, there's a record producer going to be at one of my TV shows. And I said, oh, OK. And he said, you should meet this guy. And I said, "Who is it?" And he said, "His name's Phil Wayman." And I knew that Phil Wayman had produced the Swedes and the Bay City Rollers, so I said, "I'd love to meet Phil." So I went down with my dad, and I met this guy, and he was very nice to me. And he said, "Do you want to come and have a look at my studio in North London one night?" So I went up with my dad, and I was just blown away by a real, a real recording studio. And, And I said to Phil at the end of the little tour, "I said, you know, how do you how do you get a job here?" And he said, "Well, you basically make tea, you sweep up, and." you basically are the t-boy and I said well how how do I sign up for that and he said well put your name on this list and if anything comes up we'll we'll reach out if if something becomes available and many weeks later he called up and said look we need we need a new t-boy do you want to come up and interview for the job and I did and I got the job and a few weeks later I was sweeping floors and making tea for uh, for artists in the studio
0: it was well, just... uh, yeah that sounds you know it's amazing because because I, I watched that documentary the beats with Jimmy Iovini and he had a quite a similar one you know a bit of a hustler in New York and all that but it was yeah. kind of like suddenly appearing and being there with for John Lennon doing his solo album so did you also when you saw that if you saw that documentary did you think oh yes that's how we all start in the game
1: yeah there's um there's another podcast actually called game Changers that my friend. Um, for many years who he's another producer called chris sheldon he has and i listen to these and he they talk about that the moment that they realized that they could become a record producer and a lot of the people that i admire um whether it's Gil norton or whoever i mean he's had so many great producers on there they often flood people who came up through the 80s we all sort of got our breaks in a very similar way it was getting that getting your foot in the door yes. and then proving to the artists or the people around you that you could handle this yourself. And uh, if you had a flair for it, they would trust you. And then you next minute you were in there. And it's very, very different to nowadays where, you know, people are going to school for degrees and learning and paying thousands and thousands of dollars to get an education before they even walk in the door. We were able to walk in the door, watch, clean up, make tea, listen, and then when somebody took ill for a day, step in and, and fill that hole. And if you could do it, they would be like, oh, you can do it. And you moved on that way. And uh, I mean, I moved on that way, that's for sure. I, I One of the first records I um, got a production credit on was for the, the band Kajugugu. And I was an assistant on the album. And uh, the producers were Colin Thurston and Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran. So, those producers, when it got to about seven, were sort of done for the day and wanted to have dinner with their girlfriends and wives. So they left and they said, we'll leave you with Tim, he'll take over, he'll, he'll, he'll do the recordings. So I was, it was a great opportunity for me. I was like, I'll do that, that's no problem. So I would work till midnight, till two in the morning, recording guitars with Steve or keyboards with Stuart. We'd get the stuff done and then Colin and Nick would come in and make sure they were happy with everything in the morning. So it was a wonderful opportunity for me to be able to step up. And then when the label um, decided the record was done, they needed B-sides, and Colin and Nick really didn't want to do the B-sides. So I mean, you know B-sides, but a lot of the listeners probably don't remember what a B-side is, but <laughs> you, had few, you had to have a few extra tracks lying around that you could put on the other side of the singles. Um, so the B-sides were often sort of experimental and not so much thought and time was put into them, but I was given the chance to do the B-sides And uh, I really jumped at that opportunity, wrote notes, came up with ideas with the band. And at the end of it, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be brave enough to ask the manager if I can get a co production on these B sides because I feel I deserve it. So I asked him, and there was absolutely no problem. Co co produced by Tim Palmer, fine. So the B sides were done, and the record label heard them and put two of them on the record. So I'd started the album as an assistant and in the end I'd co-produced two songs and I got my first gold disc. Wow. And that's that sort is... of, that's, that's how it happened in those days. That's how you got your chances is just being able to step in into a situation and hopefully something, you know, if your ducks were in line, it could work out.
0: But when, whenever you hear too shy, you just think that was it. That was my
1: moment. Well, yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't produce that song. <laughs> no. I produced the so I produced an instrumental track on that album, um, called um, actually called Kajigu, and uh, it was actually I didn't know this until a couple of weeks ago, but it was used as the introduction music to the '80s film um, Sixteen Candles. Right. And uh, yeah, so yeah, nice,
0: nice because yeah. cause I, I sort of you know when you were talking about Gary Glitter and the Sweet and and that for me there was Alice. Alice Cooper schools out which which, which were huge but I was a bit younger so I didn't buy my first single until David Bowie's Space Oddity got reissued and the B-side had changes and Velvet Goldmine and thankfully that was my first single and first love and all that Mm. but then you know as the 80s progressed that was kind of I suppose my decade where I became much more obsessed with it all you know when you when you're in that sort of Latter teen period, I suppose. And so, but the 80s was quite interesting on the producing production side because you had that kind of the mainstream charts, that Trevor Horn esque sound, and you know, what talk, talk had that particular kind of quality. And then I was the indie kid who just wanted to listen to all that kind of stuff on John Peel. So, when you were sort of starting out, were you also aware of how different producers were creating different sounds depending on what market they were looking to? Um, capture i suppose
1: yeah i mean it was there was so much going on because of the introduction of the technology um there was a lot of sampling keyboards coming in as you know from the trevor horn so many records with the orchestra you know and things like that (laughs) voices there was all that stuff going on and of course the limb drum came in at the beginning of the 80s and i found that as an assistant when i was working on for instance the first dead or alive album um the band turns up and it's not a traditional session where you're miking up drums and setting up headphone balances It's basically you're plugging in an oberheim sequencer system and a drum machine and as a young engineer in the 80s i learned a lot from you know the technology and actually understood that side of things and building up songs separately before i understood it the traditional way which was useful to me later but I had to really think about that because I wasn't prepared for a lot of that. And when I started to step into recording bands in many ways, I was a little too young and hadn't had that experience because I had come up through the period of the electronic stuff, working with John Fox. And I worked with a band from Birmingham called Fashion. I was the assistant on that album. I used to do a lot of work with a producer in the eighties called Zoys Beheld, and Zoyce had produced the first Dead or Alive album. And and the fashion album and john fox and i sort of became his engineer but it was a great way to learn all that stuff and he was an expert with all that technology and sennheiser um and things like that And it was when i had to try and record a band for the first time who wanted their headphones all different and you had a full lineup i was sort of a little bit out of my depth and i was very fortunate to make my way through some <laughs> of those sessions but it was a good learning curve i mean i was it was a time when You know, going back to what we were saying, it was a time when studios were very important. Uh, Bands booked studios because of the quality of the studio and the quality of the recording staff. Uh, That changed uh, as the 80s went on because artists would bring in their own engineers with the session. But at the beginning of the 80s, and most certainly in the 60s and 70s, studios were known for their studio staff. And a band were happy to just book in and use who was there and i was lucky to catch the end of that because uh in the 80s i was booked on a session and the studio manager annie said to me there's a session in on monday can you do it it's a remixing session a mixing session i should say and i said of course and it was a band called cutting crew and i didn't know anything about the band and i walk in and i Push up the faders and start working on this song and it just happened to be "Died in your arms tonight and you know of course that opportunity to work on a song of that quality as just a guy who was working for a studio would never happen these days the label would know that they had something and they would be bringing in the top mixers yeah. and they <laughs> mix it three times and everyone would be second guessing themselves um but but back in those days you know it was just like well we'll book it in we'll mix it and i mixed like pretty much the lion's share of that first album, just with the band in a mix studio in London. And I had no clue that it would be as successful as it it was, but it's certainly one of the biggest songs that I've been part of from that period.
0: Yes, because I've I've got sort of, my theory is that indie pop, the golden period was kind of 83 to 87 which are the years of the smiths and then you had the nme with that kind of c86 things kind of changed after that you know with ecstasy and then people wanted the dance scene and then you had the grunge but you you were sort of there with people like you know the mighty lemon drops and obviously the mission who had sort of also they'd had wasteland and also the gothing had become really big with people like you know susan the banshees and and um, the cult and bands like that so when you were working with like you know um the mighty lemon drops was that quite a new experience when you were saying having a band there looking at you like david newton and and his and his co-musicians was that quite intimidating at the
1: time well work, working with the lemon drops was great and and uh, by that point i would sort of figured out more about how to record alternative bands um, my first one of those was probably the mission uh, doing god's own medicine at ridge farm as we talked about earlier I, I realized the thing was that a lot of the music that I was making at the early part of the eighties was generic sort of pop music. And I didn't want to do that. And that wasn't what I loved because I was in a punk band and I loved bands and I love rock music and I love guitars. So getting the opportunity to work with the mission was a great opportunity to sort of say, Hey, I can do this. And that opened the door to bands like the mighty lemon drops and, um, Jean loves Jezebel and, James and House of Love and all those sort of bands around that period. And, it, and it, once, you know, once I started to understand how that worked and a lot of what we do as producers is not having a set way um, that you know will work with each of these bands because you have to figure out how, how you're going to make the best record with these groups of people because essentially, you know, they work in different ways. What worked for the mission may not work for the Mighty Lemon Drops. And a lot of the quirks of what's going to work and what isn't can be ironed out in something that we do called pre-production, where you'd spend a week or even two weeks with a band in a rehearsal room. And it's at that point you can figure out not only technically, this guy is really good at playing this sort of style thing, I'll make sure that he's doing this, and this guy I'll try and keep him away from that because he's sloppy and... And Not obviously you let them know that, but you've got a plan in your head of how you realise what the strengths are of the individual members and what they should be doing. And also, at that point, you learn about their personalities. And I think that's something that we lost is that you know, spending the time to get to know how to best to coax a singer into a great vocal. You have to learn about their personality and they all they all work in such different ways, you know. Some people are very arrogant and love their voices, and a lot of singers hate their voices and want to be hidden away. So you need to figure all that out in pre-production. It's a very important step. Excuse me, I'm gonna let the dog in. Come in, Ted. Come in. Did he? Put it on the Teddy. Good point. Sorry about that.
0: That's all right, <laughs> yes, get the talk in. yes. So that's interesting because, um, because things move fast for you though, don't you? Be, uh, don't they? Because, um, because one minute you know, you're you have started there with you know, Kajagoogoo and uh, the cutting crew, which obviously phenomenally you know, you hit sort of Vegas jackpot virtually straight away, but you know, you could have almost been a one hit wonder there, but then you know, you sort of come back and do the stuff with like Mighty Lemon Drops and and the mission, and then you get. David Bowie when he sort of decides to become Tim Machine which must have felt quite surreal at that point.
1: Yeah it certainly did. Um, I had worked with actually Robert Plant before that so the one thing I had had experience I was working with a megastar type <laughs> rock singer um, and that was probably the time that I realised most of all how ill-prepared I was for a big rock session and luckily for me Robert's such a great guy and we got on so well he was able to let me figure this out rather than me being fired because the studio wanted me out because I wasn't getting it quick enough. Um, But um, working with Robert was wonderful. And, and the fact that I'd worked with Robert Plant was gave me um, the credibility amongst the guitar bands that, you know, I could know what I was doing. That and the combination of the mission was enough to get all those other guitar bands. And then by going through that process of, you know, all those alternative guitar bands. I didn't know this at the time, obviously, but it was a wonderful way to, um, to get some credibility for this Bowie project because he was looking to do something much more grungy and, and raw and get away from the polished pop sound that he had found himself in. So when Reeves Gabrels and David Bowie were looking for a sort of younger engineer to work with them on this guitar-based record, um, they reached out to a few people, and it was actually Billy Duffy, or that's what Billy tells me. Anyway, it was Billy who said, "Oh, you should work with Tim Palmer. He's working with a lot of guitar bands." So I was very fortunate to get the phone call and uh, ended up in a situation where I was in Switzerland with Reeves and David, working on what at the time was a, a, a Bowie solo album. It later became Tin Machine, but at the beginning, it was a it was a Bowie record. And uh, I think it's because you know they enjoyed. The guitar bands that I'd been working with in that alternative side, so yes. it was it was just a, like everything in the music industry, it's about being in the right place at the right time and a big sprinkle of luck and 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 the ability to match it. You know, if this, it's, yes, it's, it's incredible.
0: Well, it was interesting because I often realise with people like you know Robert Plant, and there was Rod Stewart and David Bowie. Once I think with the eighties they slightly got caught out because up to then they were always kind of kind of leading the kind of the idea and the fashion, and people were following them and then they seemed to have got slightly kind of behind it and then seemed to be trying to capture you know kind of capture catch up to what was happening but it was not quite sounding exactly right and that's a, I, I always remember Rod Stewart sort of when we started to talk about the 80s kind of wanted to skip it and I thought oh, that must have been about his personal life but I think it was about the music that he was making and you know I mean David Bowie's Let's Dance album was fantastic-ish but then the next two albums not so good so it kind of felt like he needed to do something really tr- radical with Tim you know you know, and Tin Machine was definitely a, a radical change. So I suppose it, it kind of was quite interesting you worked with Robert Plant and, and David Bowie in, in a period of their life which, for me, it sounded like they were getting a bit of an existential, existential kind of crossroads.
1: Absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, some people are critical of uh, the Tin Machine records, but they really didn't give them the time to listen, especially Tin Machine two. But it was a very important um, crossroads, as you say, for David, because... I mean, for me, I loved Lodger and I loved Scary Monsters. And then Let's Dance was sonically, uh, and it was a very impressive album, but it didn't have the longevity to me of of the earlier stuff. And I think he'd lost a lot of the personality and the excitement of the recordings. So he had got sick of it and basically wanted to have fun again and be creative and not be constrained by thinking about how is this going to be a huge mega pop hit? And I was lucky enough to be part of that transition, and uh, it was hard. It was hard at times dealing with these crazy um, Hunt and Tony from Iggy's (laughs) band, who certainly uh, they know what they want to do, and they don't take a lot of direction. And then Reeves is just an insane guitar player, and David, and just being the person in the in literally in the middle of them all, trying to pull it all together and trying to capture them all live. But um, I think it was an important. it was definitely an important phase for David. Um, he wanted to shed that skin uh, of being the pop the pop guy, and uh, it was very important to the later albums that he got this out of his system again.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose sort of, you know, like I said, I was kind of lucky that Bowie was my first single, so and then Changes won, and so I sort of stuck with him right through to Black Star, and um, and I always thought, well, actually, I think he just needed to get some crazy guys in and just to rock out for a few albums. And I I agree with you. I think the second album, which I played a lot, was just absolutely amazing. So I thought, well, I don't know, people wanted to diss it before it sort of even happened, I think. So um, but then, you know, then we we had that period and then you sort of we had the kind of grunge and then everything started to develop. And you were definitely the man on the scene then, weren't you? So did you feel like with the 90s, a bit like Stephen Street, you were just like, just the, the, not the emails at that stage, but yeah, the invites to produce and to record just would come in thick and fast.
1: It was definitely a great period and it was the catalyst for me to, to move to America, there's no doubt. I'd worked, um, I mean, I must point out that what we were doing with Tin Machine, I mean, David was listening to Sonic Youth and Glenn Branker and Dinosaur Junior, but it wasn't really grunge it was sort of predated grunge and if you look at the timeline um it was certainly before the nine inch nails thing and you know um it was obviously before the nirvana and pearl jam because i worked on the pearl jam a lot later so so what david was doing was maybe a little ahead of his time i'd say for sure and sonic you know, people's ears and being able to enjoy that type of recording would have been a lot easier for them to palette if it had come out a few years later. But, you know, to be an innovator, you've got to be prepared to do that. Um, Yeah, it was a very interesting time. I started to move over and get my manager, um, Sandy Robertson, who's been my manager my whole career. He moved to America and set up his management company in the States, and he was trying to get me to do projects in America. So I came over to the States and I, I mixed an album for a band called Mother Love Bone mother love bone with a band that was pearl jam previously as such they had a a singer called andrew wood who was a a very um, charismatic singer Um, and there was a lot of uh, rock in there but it was psychedelic and it had a little bit of the cult in there and it was all sorts of stuff and it was a very cool record but sadly andrew uh, had a drug uh, heroin problem and he tried to clean up and then he came out and Took some heroin again that was strong and he ended up dying so that project was literally about to come out and it was cut short very quickly um and it was a very sad end to that 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 band because they were very loved and people expected a lot to happen with them but um being part of that mother love bone album was a great thing for me and obviously it gave me the introduction to knowing half of pearl jam so when they put their demo together uh, under their new name of mookie blaylock I got a tape by a band called Mookie Blaylock with this new young singer they'd found, who was Eddie. And they asked me if I liked it and whether I'd be interested in, in mixing their new album. And I did like it, and it was very different. I could hear a lot of different elements in there. I mean, Eddie obviously has a very unique voice, which is the most important part of being a vocalist, in my opinion. We can tune things and you can work on vocals, but if you haven't got a unique voice to start with, then you're not winning yeah uh, and he had a very unique style and a, a very unique voice and the songs were cool there was an element of traditional rock in there with mike the way he played very long sort of almost um you know lynnard skinner type solos at times but the blend of the whole thing was quite unique and uh, we did a test mix together and they liked it but i didn't want to be in america anymore i had been away from my young family um for a long time so I didn't know whether I was going to blow it. But I said, you know, can we can we record in London, in Surrey, back in that studio that I worked with the Mission in, in the countryside? And they said, no problem. So they all flew. And this was the days when budgets were bigger than they are now, of course. So they all flew over to London from Seattle. And I was living fairly near Ridge Farm in Surrey. And I would drive in every day. And we made that record in about two and a half weeks. And it was a classic case of... You know, when you don't put too much pressure on yourself and you let things happen instinctively and organically, it, it often works for the better. When people know a record's going to be hugely successful, then everyone has to approve it. Everyone has to hear it. They second-guess things, and and you know, I don't think that rock and roll or or any sort of music works particularly well by committee. It's far better to have one vision mm-hmm. than two visions at least the producers and the band hopefully melding together that's when you get something special when it starts being pulled apart from all these directions like marketing or we think this and that, that's that's where it all goes to shit in my opinion yes but we were left alone to make that um, Pearl Jam record and um, yeah it's 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 most certainly the most successful record of my career
0: because <laughs> did you I mean there was that interesting documentary about rock rock fields in in you know the residential place in the sort of countryside of the, the welsh countryside so that obviously yeah yeah in,
1: that's where we did the mighty lemon drops record
0: right so obviously that does have a lot of kind of um benefits being in a residential place where people are just very focused possibly go for a walk around the field go to the local pub but you're not you're not sort of losing the kind of energy and the if, if there's going to be some magic it's going to happen there rather than sort of spreading it over a period of time because during that early 90s there was a bit of a habit and i it might sort of um you know of kind of I remember certain albums and bands started getting you know a mix in Berlin and then one in LA and then one in London and there's this produce and everybody seemed to have Brian Eno touching them and you know wanted a Brian Eno to thing and it sometimes like was like oh, it's, it's not quite what I expected and I was just often wondered if it was because the the kind of urgency and the vision like you said too many people started examining it and going I'm mm, not sure about this can we go and do it again but this time go in Berlin does that is that something that I have picked up, or is that actually possibly true?
1: Well, I think it's possibly true. I mean, definitely when you're bringing in different people, Um, I think if you have a team of producers, or whether it's Brian Eno or whoever, and and an artist, and you take them to different places to be inspired, that can work, um, because you still have that same body of work in mind. But, But farming stuff out to different producers all the time is... You, you know, it's not going to be so coherent as it is when you have the same group. Uh, but it's it's one of those questions that, you know, there's a right there's no right or wrong to that. Um, mm-hmm. times, oftentimes, a band will record a record and the record label will get the record and they'll say to the band, look, we've got your record and we don't think that you have the single. And the band start panicking and they work really hard and they write a couple more songs and they write... The song that defined that whole period, uh, purely because they were under pressure, and they might end up actually recording that with someone else, um, but they, it goes on the album, and that's the one. Um, so there's 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 two and there's there's arguments to uh, and, for and against um, that anything anything you can think of in music, you can find an argument. <laughs> for and against, that's for sure. The counterpoint. Um, I, yes. I mean, it's like the mixing. It's like the, in the seventies and eighties ending around the 80s if you produced an artist part of your job description was that you had an engineer that you worked with to record and then that same team of engineer producer then went on to mix the record so you had a flow of a vision and of people to make one complete product and that added to that what you were saying a sort of feeling of an album uh, because it was minds people studios and it all flowed together in the 80s Labels came up with the idea of, well, they've been working on it too long and they've lost their perspective. Let's bring in a completely separate mixer to to mix it, and he'll hear things that maybe they're overlooking. Now, in that situation, sometimes a mixer could come in and just completely miss the point of what the band and what the producer were going for, and uh, the band end up hating their own record. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't successful what they did. It means that the artist was unhappy. I mean, case in point, um, Nirvana were apparently really unhappy having uh, the album mixed by someone else when they did Nevermind. And of course, that's one of the most important albums of that period, and they were not happy with it. So were the record company right in bringing in someone? um, Mm. Or were they wrong? Or maybe what they had done would have been fine anyway. And that's why I'm saying there's never a right or wrong answer. but, uh, But the idea is that a remixing guy would come in and, and bring a fresh perspective, and see the wood for the trees, and be able to to give you a better a better version of what they've done.
0: Yes, and it's interesting with you know interviewing a lot of the bands over the time where, you know, as they go you know often talk about different albums and they've had a producer you know on one or two albums and then another one. That, that person, you, the producer, plays a huge part in that recording process. Did you, over the years and decades, have you sort of taken that responsibility? Did that sort of dawn on you one day, thinking, God, my personality and character, you know, I'm not just that person who's kind of technical. I'm really having to, um, yes, be able to sort of pull this together. You know, and... and... Uh, yeah, I
1: think... I, 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 I understood the responsibility, and I think that responsibility... Um, was a lot of it was about like we talked before as a producer one of your biggest roles is to find out how to make the best record with these people and that's something that people forget a lot of the time but it's like knowing you know that this this artist will sing and perform in a certain way Uh, I've worked with artists who've said look do you mind if I there's a cupboard in my in my apartment where I've done my best vocals and I usually go in there in the dark, and I put up a 58 microphone, and I, I sing, and I get my best vocals. In the old school days, a lot of people would say, "Oh no, you've got to come into the studio and and set up a nice 87 with a valve, you know, preamp, and blah 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 blah." And but but I've always been like, look, I don't care, mate. If you can sing and make it emotional and tell the story better, and the sound quality suffers, then that's what we need to do. Because I've always believed, and I harp on about this all the time, but the song, the song, and the performance is what what sells the uh, the record. Yes. I mean, we listen. We listen as as music lovers. We've listened through the years to some horrendous recordings that we've loved, and we've also listened to some incredible recordings that we've loved. And the thing that is the most important thing is that we love the song and we love the way it was presented to us, and that's why. Uh, cover versions are always difficult because if you fall in love with a song and it's sloppy and it's just a bit, you know, it was recorded in the 70s, the playing was a bit sloppy. You love it for being sloppy. You don't want to hear it played properly. If somebody comes along and plays it to you with a drum machine and everything's in the right place and it sounds good, you're like, this is sterile now. I don't like it. I liked it messy. And uh, when you have a good song to work with, you have a lot of possibilities open to you and the most important thing to get right is to get the lyrics right the performance right and the song right and uh, and get it to be emotionally feeling right you know that's the most important thing and um, it was always the same thing with demos uh, a lot of the time a band would go into a studio whether it was in the 80s 70s whenever they go into a, a demo studio and they throw something down with a, a young engineer or a cheap piece of gear and the gear starts distorting and the vocal has a certain quality about it and you think wow actually that that's pretty great i don't know if they intended to do that but that sort of distortion on the vocal is fabulous so you go in and try and record a vocal properly and make the record properly as the producer and you think i liked it better on the demo the king of doing this was jimmy ivey jimmy ivy goes back to demos all the time and he'll say i don't care that this sounds better i like this demo and he'll just mix the demo make a few adjustments and put that out because it has the right feeling and uh demo itis as they called it in those days where a band would fall in love with their demo or the label would was always very challenging as a record producer because you go in to make the proper version and you're fighting against something that's actually pretty good and the technology now the great thing about it is the technology now is there so we can say okay i'm taking those guitars from the demo that have got this sort of scratchy, crappy sound that are cool and they sort of exciting. I'm going to bring them into our session and if you can better it and we can play it better and we all agree it's better, then we'll use the new ones because if we don't, I'm using what you did on the demo because that was great. And the technology is there now to make sure that we always have the best.
0: Yes, because I I I must admit, you know, some of those John Peel sessions which probably had to be done in a day, I always thought had that a sort of warmer sound or more live sound that that sometimes the album were like actually oh, a bit disappointing. Actually, now I've sort of heard the album version because the, the John Peel session was just like oh yeah they have kind of nailed it, haven't they? Or somehow it kind of had a warmth to it.
1: Well, often the John Peel you might hear the John Peel first as well,
0: right? Yes, this is true. So
1: if you, so you, you want, that's my point is that you fall in love with it in that form. Uh, maybe if you'd heard the recorded version. Uh, you might have fallen in love with it being that way. And then when you hear the John Peel session, you think, Oh, it sounds sloppy as LA. Yes,
0: it's a bit thin, it, it, a bit reedy. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's yeah. always been it's always been a challenge there. Always.
0: Yes. So look, what if you could say something to an 18-year-old self starting out in music? Obviously, you've you've had the quite extraordinary kind of path. I mean, I just wondered if if there was some sort of advice that you, you know, especially if you sort of look back at yourself and thought, oh yeah. I would have just told them, you know, just give them that little word because of something that you were doing slightly differently. I just, yeah, I just wondered what that would be.
1: I think the thing that I would like to say to myself as a younger producer engineer would be to have more confidence in your own opinion um, and have more confidence in your own musicality. Because I know for a fact that for so many years, even though I can, and I still can only play guitar in a very simple fashion and keyboards in a simple fashion, I would always think, well, you can't contribute to this because you're not a proper musician. You don't know the proper notes. And that's never important. What's important is, does it it move you in the song? Sometimes I'll play a guitar part now and I'll play a couple of notes and it'll be really simple. It'll be something that a proper guitar player might even... Not even consider because it's too simple, but because i'm a non musician it's important, and I think that when I was younger, I would very rarely contribute because I felt that I shouldn't I had to stay back and and having the confidence to be able to 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 just try things and and, and know that, that you know maybe what you're actually suggesting is actually better than what you're being forced into um, but basically all I'm trying to say is be confident in yourself yeah. Uh, Oh, don't always doubt yourself don't always think oh there's other people that can do it better than you maybe you can do it better than you think you know
0: yes absolutely well look well tim this has been amazing well thank you ever so much for your time this has been great and i'll um i can always send you a link to it when um yes when i put it out if that's that sort, you know if you want that that would be fine but um thanks thanks for sort of agreeing to this
1: no, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed talking to you. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, it's been brilliant. And uh, yeah, it's been great hearing about the David Bowie. Well, interesting, because I, I wasn't going to keep interrupting, but I know that during that album, the the, the Glass Spider Spiders, he did mention the Screaming Blues Messiahs, and he had sort of various kind of quite young bands playing at the time, including New Model Army. So I think he did sort of pick up on that kind of guitar sound that... You know, I don't think that band, Blue Scream, uh, the Blue Scream Messiahs, had actually even brought out an album or they might have done. And then he, he played it, but that was their first album. And uh, yeah, so he obviously was kind of interested in knowing that he needed to move on from Never Let Me Down.
1: Yeah, I mean, he he, he uh, the amazing thing about David Bowie, I think, is that. You know, he really is always aware of things that are going on. He's always listening and he was always learning and he was always reading. And, you know, he was a hero to me. And the opportunity to spend time with somebody like that and watch them and learn from them in a studio situation, considering the albums that he'd made previous to when I got involved, was, you know, just just unbelievable opportunity for me. And he, one of the things that he brought out in me and taught me was that, you know, through the 80s, I was as guilty as anybody of making things sound too perfect and everything had to sound just right. And he would leave things alone and say, no, no, leave it alone. Let it be that because that has a lot of personality and it doesn't matter that it's a little bit out of time because it'll ultimately become your favorite part. And he had a very good ear for knowing when something was cool, even though it might not be perfect. Um, cause it's very easy to, to say, Oh, that's out of time. or that's slightly out of tune, but, you know maybe sometimes if you just leave things alone you're actually leaving more of the personality of the performance in there and he was very very good at that I learned a lot from him about when we made the first tin machine album there was a song called i can't i can't read and when we recorded it i did a rough mix at the end of the session and he liked the rough mix so when we were in new york mixing the album he said uh okay well we'll leave that one that's fine and i said oh no i, I need to mix it I, I was dreadful that mix and he said well i i liked it i thought it had an atmosphere about it and i said no I, I know i can just sort a few things out to make it better and he said all right this is what we'll do i'll give you an hour to mix it and uh do your best and uh, we'll listen to it and we'll use what you've got in an hour so it was like the most ridiculous challenge ever so i was as fast as I could getting a balance and getting the things that I wanted sorted. But he knew that in its rawest form it worked well. So I didn't overdo it. I didn't over push it. And it's it's got a certain sound about it. It's very upfront in your face. And and you know, at the end of the hour he said, Right, that's it. Sounds great. We'll use this. And uh, and that's never happened to me before. And I loved it. It was great. It's such yes. a fun
0: That's a confidence builder, isn't it? That is definitely a confidence yeah. builder. Yeah. Thank you ever so much. That's been amazing. Okay. Cool. Okay. Then. If, Take you, care. if you have anything you
1: want to ask, just reach out. Will. Okay. Cheers. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye.
0: And that was me in conversation with Tim Palmer to find out more about his life in music, plus the new project with Wayne Hussey. Uh, that is the Remission International that has just come out. That you'll be able to find in all good bookshops and record shops, and also online and streamed in. You can find it anywhere, really. And uh, yes, if you need any more information, just Google Tim Palmer. It's all there. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. You can, um, yes, contact me if you want for some random reason. Um, make it nice, though, on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, just do at C86 Show. And also all these interviews have been archived. And you can find those on Podbean, Spotify and iTunes. Yes, dramatic pause. Anyway, it's there. C eighty six show. That's it. Have a great week.